The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about a bunch of things, actually, but we're going how this started was I read this article by John Whitehead. Uh, called Homeland's Whistleblower Duplicity. And it's it was a fascinating article that got me all excited about learning about this wonderful attorney. And he also has a book called A Government of Wolves, The Emerging American Police State. So I got a copy of the book, and I read this article, and I thought we'd get him on. And I'm so thrilled because he's coming to us all the way from Charlottesville, Virginia, where I lived and loved and that's the home of Thomas Jefferson. They, they act like he's still alive. And the University of Virginia and Monticello, which is on the back of your nickel. Beautiful place. So I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much, John, for joining us all the way from beautiful Charlottesville. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mari. I appreciate it. Yes. So I was reading your article, and I thought it was really important that we talk about this whistleblower case to start out. Tell us about the case of the Department of Homeland Security versus Moline, which is before the U.S. Supreme Court, and it deals with whistleblowers. Yeah, Robert McLean, he had served in the Air Force. He had been a Border Patrol agent. He also volunteered as a, to serve as an air marshal after the 9-11 attacks. Um, air marshals, and I didn't know this until I got involved with the case, they, uh, they're federal law enforcement agents. They travel undercover on commercial airliners after 9-11, right. hopefully to deter any kind of weird attacks. Uh, in July 2003, uh, Robert McLean and other air marshals were briefed about a specific, they supposedly imminent terrorist attacks to long-distance flight. Incredibly, despite this warning, less than three days later, McLean and the other air marshals received the text messages from their superiors at the Department of Homeland Security saying that they were canceling all overnight missions that they were supposedly involved in to stop terrorists. And this is done supposedly to save money on overnight hotels, overtime pay, and travel allowances. Mm. McLean uh, saw that as being really, really kind of crazy, so he later alerted an MSNBC reporter to the government's plan to remove air marshals from many of these flights. He thought it was a security risk. Um, now, didn't he first go and, and uh, question or complain yeah, about that? Yeah, he sure did. He yeah. got nowhere. But that's usually what I see, because we've been involved in the Rutherford Institute, which I serve as the president of, um, with a number of whistleblowers who come in and talk to us, and some pretty terrifying stories, by the way, some I could not uh, reveal because I act an attorney. 
dealing with them, but yeah. uh, usually you get nothing out of them. They make decisions. How they make these decisions, we don't really know, but this decision didn't seem to make sense. The MSNBC reporter went ahead and uh, alerted people to this, and so the DS, DHS rescinded its order and put the air marshals back on. Uh, later it was found out that McLean leaked it, and he was fired for supposedly disclosing sensitive security information. And by, well, when, when he disclosed this information, it wasn't uh, sensitive security information. Right. So the Supreme Court now has to uh, undertake whether or not there, it's before the U.S. Supreme Court, the case is whether or not the Whistleblower Protection Act, which uh, people who uh, release this kind of information, whether or not their free speech rights protect them. So I think it's a good case. I think it's one that uh, hopefully the Supreme Court will decide in the right way because uh, I don't. I, I like the fact that Robert McLean can still live in America. He doesn't have to flee to Russia like Everett Snowden or other NSA agents and other agents that have disclosed. They, they've actually left the country. I even get contacted by people who say they've left the United States. Wow. And they're actually, this is the amazing thing, they're encouraging me to leave the United States. Oh, <laughs> these are former Secret Service agents. They're, they're, they do not like the direction of the country. Mm. Uh, they fear we're moving into a police state. And as I argue in my book, A Government of Wolves, the emerging American police state, that we are in a police state at this time. Yeah, we're going to talk about your book, but I want to just finish a couple things with this so that my audience understands the Whistleblower Protection Act. Could you kind of give an overview? Because I, I know this is obviously the heart of uh, the case in the Supreme Court. So what exactly is the Whistleblower Protection Act? Whistleblower Protection Act, uh, as long as it's not sensitive security information, right. uh, it's protected under the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Uh, like I said, this information basically, if you, if you, just when I'm giving the facts, it wasn't sensitive security information. Right. Uh, they were <laughs> taking these guys off of flights right. uh, for supposedly cost-saving measures, and I'm not sure that was the reason they did it. Who knows? We don't know. Right. But the uh, uh, Supreme Court now has to decide whether or not, and they only uh, classified it as sensitive security information to the Department of Homeland Security after the fact. Mm-hmm. So the question is, can they do that? Can they come along, a bureaucrat of some kind, and say, oh, no, the act doesn't apply because we've now classified this as security-sensitive information. So that's the issue in the case, is whether they can uh, come in after something's happened and, and have one of these uh, whistleblowers either uh, put on trial, put in jail, which they could go, or whatever. And what I, th- what I think the case is important is, uh, I think that people should be able to step forward when they see some, the government doing something dangerous. And I think that's the citizen's obligation. I've argued it all my life. I'm a civil liberties lawyer for 40 years. If they see the government moving in a dangerous direction, doing something crazy, which in this case I think was crazy at the time, uh, they should be able to speak up and protect us and, and let us know what's going on because the basis of free government is transparency. Exactly. We have to know what they're doing. I mean, there are certain things we, you know, we shouldn't be revealed, obviously, because that would become a security threat. This right. was not. This this actually increased security right. because they rescinded the order and put the air marshals back on the flight. Yeah, exactly <laughs> the opposite. So it was a it was a good decision he made. But I've had a lot of well, whistleblowers who talk to me. They're intimidated. They're afraid. I actually had a, one NSA agent. I was eating dinner someplace. He walked to me and told me who he was. He said he had read my book, A Government of Walls. He agreed with me, and he didn't like what the NSA was doing. He said, I'm a constitutionalist. And so I said, why don't you uh, come out and uh, 
you know, reveal what you know then. If you think they're doing wrong things, he said. He looked at me and went, Bradley Manning and Everett Snowden, and he walked off. Yeah, yeah. He didn't want to end up in Russia or in a military yeah. detention camp. Yeah. So I think this is why the case is important. Absolutely. So let's talk a teeny bit about Edward Snowden. You know, some people think that he's a traitor. Some people think that he's a hero. So, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, he was um, revealing, would you say that he had violated, um, you know, that, that he should be covered by the Whistleblower Protection Act? Shouldn't he be covered? He sure has um, made a huge impact on the entire world to sure bring did. out these issues. So, you know, from I guess from my perspective, he's a hero because he wasn't going to get any money out of this, and and look where he's living. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts about him and and you know constitutionally and the the whistleblower act? Well, there have been a number of you know former agents that have written books and stuff and disclosed all this. This was not unknown. In fact. I wrote a book that came out in 1986 where I talked about a lot of the stuff that Snowden revealed about the NSA. So it's been it's been out in the public press, just people didn't know. I think what Snowden did is he uh, alerted uh, average citizen to the fact that uh, the National Security Agency, and here's the thing, they're downloading your, all your text messages, your emails, they're watching your Facebook posts, they're downloading those into a file. As you know, the Fourth Amendment says that before the government does surveillance on you, they have to have probable cause. In other words, some evidence or some reasonable suspicion you're doing something illegal, or they violate the Fourth Amendment. And they're supposed uh, for, to get some kind of... unreasonable search and seizures. Yeah, and so aren't they supposed Snowden to get... what was a government that was doing all these things. Mm-hmm. They were bypassing the Constitution. They were bypassing the Fourth Amendment. Right. spoke up. I think any good American should do that because... The NSA admits to downloading 250 million text messages a day. Wow. This is just, and, get, and it, what, what, what I'm finding with people I work with, uh, protest groups especially, they're getting nervous because what happens is they get these text messages going back and forth with one another about they're going to do a free speech protest somewhere, maybe the Ferguson decision. Mm-hmm. What they find out, though, is the NSA is reading that material, transmitting it to the FBI. The FBI shows up and prevents the march yeah. or the meeting. Right. That's very, very common. In fact, that's been done since the 1960s. But now with all this information out there and the NSA, uh, you know, the Facebook posts, we had a, a case, and people can look it up, and I mentioned it in the book, The Government of Wolves, the Brandon Robb case. I actually was one of the lawyers in the case. He was doing anti-Obama Facebook posts and doing rap lyrics from a, a group in uh, out of Canada. Uh, one day he hit a home business. He was typing a couple years ago at his home in Richmond, Virginia, by the way. Hmm. He hears cars outside, and he gets up. He's a former Marine, decorated Marine. He walks through the window, and he sees all these police running toward his home and people in plain clothes. Mm. He opens the door and says, what's up? And this an FBI agent, a Department of Homeland Security agent, shows their badges, and the police are standing there in their black outfits. And they say, we're concerned about your Facebook post. Uh. And they said, would you step out? He did. He didn't have a shirt on. They grabbed him, handcuffed him behind his back. They eventually threw him against the fence and lacerated his back. Uh. He asked for bandages. They actually took him to the police station in Richmond and put a um, one of those prison shirts on him. He said it stuck to the cut. It hurt so oh. bad. I called the police chief and said, what's he being charged with? They said, oh, he's not being charged with any crime. We're just concerned about his Facebook post. He may be mentally ill. They put him in a mental hospital. <sighs> we filed a lawsuit and got him out in a week, and now oh. we're suing the federal government. 
But that all came through the NSA. <laughs> right. Reading his quote, alerting people, instead of just questioning him, finding out he was a decorated Marine. If they'd have had a search warrant, which they didn't have, they'd have found he had no weapons, no guns, nothing. Right. He's not a dangerous character. They put him in a mental hospital. Mm. What we found is there are, are uh, what, five million of those that occur a year across the They call it involuntary commitments, where they put people in these mental hospitals. A lot of them can't get out. Oh, my God. So... That's going on in the United States. In fact, I had an NSA what agent about the tell me that uh, we're following the Soviet model now with mental hospitals. He said, uh, be very, very careful. I had a question. What about that you know, limitation on a 72-hour hold for a mental institution that you can't keep someone you know, beyond their, uh, at least in California, they have a, it's a 5150. They can't keep someone longer than 72 hours. Beyond. Not in most states, that's not true. Oh. No. So there are people... Huh. I mean, he wouldn't have got out. In fact, um, he had a psychiatrist, and that we, who's one of our defendants in the lawsuit, who told him, "I'm going to brainwash and force meds on you." Mm. He called me while the psychiatrist was sitting there, oh my and uh, he was on speakerphone. I said, "Well, you tell your psychiatrist, a, you have to have a court order to force medications on anybody yeah. in Virginia, and by he's violating your rights, so we're going to sue him when we finally get you out of there." Oh, my goodness, John. But uh, this is a decorated Marine. I mean, he's uh, gung-ho. And, but, yeah. uh, the fact that they carted him off and the police chief said he's committed no crime. And again, I had an NSA agent tell me, John, we're following the Soviet model. The Soviets, you know, the old Soviet Union was famous for locking up dissidents in military. Right, right. And China, right? And so, China, yes, and, uh, and we, we make, so. you know, we say how we're different from those countries, but it's scary. I just want to, if, if you've just started listening, we are speaking with John Whitehead, who's an attorney and author who has written, debated, and practiced widely in the area of constitutional law and human rights. And you can find out more about him at Rutherford.org, which is this institute that he started to, to help people, um, you know, civil rights issues. And he is also the author of this book that I just got and I've been reading, and it's called The Government of Wolves, The Emerging American Police State by John Whitehead. And so, John, I, let me ask you a little bit about this book. So why did you write this book? Well, uh, I've been involved in this area for many years. Uh, with the, I, I saw more and more, and this is happening, it used to happen once a year maybe, uh, that an unarmed citizen got shot. It's happening almost every week now, sometimes mm. a couple of times a week across the country. The militarization of the police really bothered me. The police uh, on uh, tank-like vehicles, the SWAT team raids, which in 1980 there were like 1,500 SWAT team raids a year, and now there are 80,000 a year. Oh, my goodness. And here's the thing. About 80% of those SWAT team raids where they're going through people's doors at night, people are getting shot, they always shoot <sighs> the dogs, or from mere warrant service, where a policeman used to show up knocking on your door. Right. But as I detail in the book, in some of those cases where I was shocked, the Iana Jones case, a seven-year-old girl in Detroit, they did a SWAT team raid on her apartment in Detroit. Uh. She, one of the police guns, the policeman said his gun went off by accident. She mm. was shot. She was mm. wrapped in her police, her, her prince's blanket. Mm. Blood spotted everywhere. Her father runs out, sees the daughter dead in the blood everywhere. They shove mm. him face down in the blood. Mm. Come to find out they were in the wrong place. They, the fellow they were looking for was two or three stories up. Mm. Then there's the case of Jose Guerrero, which I detail in the book. Another decorated Marine in Arizona. Uh, the police were doing a sweep of looking for marijuana. They crashed through his door at 3 a.m. in the morning, took his wife and child, shoved him in the closet. He stood at the end of the hallway with his hunting rifle. 
Mm. They fired 71 times at him, the SWAT team. He got hit 50. He died. Uh, the police said he fired him, and uh, well, an investigation showed the, the safety never came off his weapon. Mm. So we're seeing more of those kind of cases. And I, as more alarmed I became, going, wait a second, the Fourth mm. Amendment, they should be knocking at your door if they think you have some marijuana inside. Yeah. And showing you the warrant because... The problem is there, and again, Jose Guerrero, this Marina got killed. There was no marijuana found in his home. They were in the wrong home. We're oh. finding that to be an issue. So are uh, they so going, are they? Th- th- are these are things I saw when I grew up and I studied Nazi history, and I talk a little bit about that in the book. Yeah. This is very reminiscent of old regimes where they go through people's doors in the middle of the night and mm. the FBI rounding people up before they have a free speech protest. Those are all bad signs for a country that proclaims itself to be one of uh, democracy and freedom. Exactly. And, you know, it always worries about me about, you know, whether we're talking about the NSA or the FBI or or whatever, the, you know, not having to have um, a, a warrant. And then the FISA court, which is kind of a joke that, that we only get. There's, there's nobody looking out for our privacy, which is what is, I think, really scary as we move forward. And, and you talk about this also. What do you, you know, in the first part of your book, you, you, the title is, Is This America? You know, and um, what do you mean? Who will protect us? Who, who can protect us when this is all going on? There isn't a lot of protection now, especially, uh, and again, that's where Snowden gave us a good heads up. He basically confirmed, and now we know, that they're all your electronic, your bank account. Yeah. They know what's in your bank account. Credit cards. When, when you fill out your tax forms, be sure you don't make a mistake, because they will match it up with your bank automatically. The IRS, all the agencies work with the NSA. The FBI, they all, the CIA, they're all connected. In a, by the way, Amazon just built a twenty million dollar uh, computer cloud, so they can all collate now. Amazon and Google work mm. really closely with the NSA and the CIA. Mm. By the way, that's well known. So uh, they know everything you're doing in your personal life. Your their, your phone, the FBI admits they can turn your cell phone on and it becomes a microphone. Mm. Your laptop. The FBI admits this publicly. They can turn your laptop on; it becomes a camera. Right. The new smart TVs, by the way, watch out, folks. They they're on. They're when they're off, they're still on. They can record you in the room, mm. and they can actually record what you're doing. So we've moved into uh, again. I, I talk a lot about in the book. I talk a lot about futuristic movies. Yes. Uh, George Orwell nailed it. He right. said there'd be a time when. Nothing is private anymore. Everything is being watched. Uh, see, my, I, I tell people, go watch the movie Minority Report. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the movie is set in 2054. Right. 40 years from now, but all the technology in that film is already available it's to already the United here. States government. Yeah, yeah. And listen, drones start flying over America next year, starting in January, and... Um, I've written a lot on drones. They're discussed in the book. And people like people go to our website at rutherford.org. But the, the drones have scanning devices. They'll be able to see through the walls of your home. And they Based can be so Software t- from 20,000 feet. Yeah, and can't they Weapons. be so tiny that they can oh, just, like, mosquito, look they, in your... They're, yeah. they're developing a mosquito one. They already have the seagull drone. You can go on YouTube and watch the seagull. You can watch the hummingbird drone. Yeah. They have an Atlas Android now. It's a six-foot, 230-pound man. I mean, people are telling me that's the future policeman who will actually work with drones when he approaches your property. Yeah. 
So that's all within uh, probably by 2040, 2030, some people are saying. Well, I just heard recently I was at a, at a retreat, and they were talking about the, the cars. Every car, mm-hmm. as of 2017, is going to have, um, it's going to have G, a GPS that, that can be uh, accessed by anybody. They can see how fast you're going, besides how fast yep. you're going, where you're going, and, um, and basically know everything that's going on in your car. And, and it will report you. That's and it'll key. report, uh, yeah. And people and the scary stuff. It's bad enough that you know that uh, the uh, the police can have access to. But basically, anyone. It'll be open source, so anybody can see what you're doing and and you know track you and just. I mean, it's just a big brother in your car. You know, we're in the future. I'm right, telling people it's, that. it's so right here. What I've done is I've written letters to Congress. I've proposed legislation. In fact, I wrote the first drone legislation in the world that got passed here in our city of Charlottesville, hmm. regulating drones. Uh, several states have now picked up and passed that legislation. I've petitioned Congress without much avail because Congress has actually has a drone lobby of about 50 congressmen that are in the hip pocket of the drone industry. So it would hmm. be very difficult. I mean, what, what has Congress done to protect us against the NSA? Nothing. Not much. No, no. no. And, uh, so there, I mean, there's a lot of talk about it, you know, because talk. that, because the people are up in arms about it. But yeah, and then, you know, the FBI doesn't want us to use encryption. No. Nope. That's the, that's the, and they have their thing. own hackers. Uh, they admit that they hack into your computer devices. If they think you're a threat, a threat is anybody, in my opinion, today, and we see it in the cases we're involved in, anybody out there who's actively practicing First Amendment protests and those kind of things. Nonviolent, by the way. And you and me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anybody that uh, speaks back is on the list. I, I had an NSA agent who I was talking to, and he says, you realize why I hid your infiltrated? And mm. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, you figure it out. Oh, my God. But whether that's true or not, he might have been joking, but uh, you know, they have, the FBI admits to having 15,000 paid informants, which infiltrate groups. They admit mm. that. So... If you have a, a, a group and you're doing something that's a little confrontational, or let's put it this way, a group that follows the Bill of Rights. Yes. You're being watched. Yes. Yep. I mean, they admit that. They, I mean, just ordinary, inane text messages they're downloading for whatever reason. Yeah. What's what's scary about that is the the real terrorists, when you're collecting so much, you know, the, the total... Uh, everybody's stuff. I mean, how can you sift through that to even see when there's some real problem? Like we saw that with the 9-11 terrorists, right? I mean, well, well, what I'm told by agencies is that the computers are so powerful. They have a Utah facility, which is amazing, but the computers actually parse the information, then they uh, deliver it to the agent and say danger or threat. But, but like remember that Robb happened. That Marino was telling you about who's doing the anti-Obama. If you yeah. do something anti-government, that computer is automatically going to label you as someone to be watched. Mm. You know, uh, you call our, you call in one of your chapters, you talk about the electronic concentration camp. What do you mean by that? That's uh, what we've been talking about, the NSA. We're in a, what, okay. well, I'd say, in a, a concentration camp in the sense that you're being continually watched. If you step out of line, you can be investigated. Right, right. You can be arrested. You can be Picked up and put in protective custody, they're calling it now. That's what happened to Brandon Robb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you live in that, you're watched continually. Most people don't realize that the NSA has uh, two programs. One's called Echelon and one's called the Five Eyes program. It's all over the world. They have bases, the NSA, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, 
Great Britain, a few other countries. So they actually have the whole globe now mm. under sort of a, what I would call, I call it electronic concentration camp because they're, you're in it, they're watching you, and it's, it extends all over the world. And that's why when people tell me you should flee here or flee there because America going to martial law, I'd say, well, you can flee to New Zealand, but they have one there. You can flee to Australia, but they have there. And you, flee, you can't flee to China because in a, in a, a point of crisis, they'll work with the government. So. Right. And I think Russia is the same thing. I yeah. think that's an illusion sooner or later. Yeah. You talk about the criminalization of America's school children. What do you mean by that? Gee, since the 1990s, we've been involved in so many cases with uh, kids in public schools. Uh, Zero-tolerance policies, if people are not familiar with those, they're very draconian. Just to give you a, a case we handled last Christmas, his name was Johnny Jones, 10-year-old kid in Pennsylvania. He went to the teacher's desk to grab something, a piece of paper or something. On his way back to the desk, he's a fourth grader, his best friend in class did a silent gun, went pow with his lips, didn't make any noise. Mm-hmm. Johnny Jones had seen the movie Brave and thought it was cool. So Johnny Jones did an imaginary bow and arrow. Teacher saw him do the imaginary bow and arrow. He was pulled out of class and told that he violated the zero tolerance policy because he had a weapon. Oh, God. It made no sense. Mm. It mm. took us two months. That was on his record as a weapons charge. We got it cleaned. But we've had so many of those kind of cases. We, we have cases where kids are having what I used to do in the, the lunchroom, by the way, Food fights occasionally. Yeah, of course. Uh, if you if, if people in my book of government of wolves, I actually have a bunch of kids sitting in the courtroom with striped shirts on for a food fight. <laughs> kids are getting arrested. I mean, they're being taken out of school for writing stories. There was a kid, I think, in Tennessee or Kentucky. He was told a couple years ago to write a scary story about Halloween. Well, he wrote one about all the teachers being shot in the school. Oh. He actually got an A on a report. He spent three days in jail. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but. And he was released finally. He didn't do anything wrong. But we're still hearing those kind of things. I mean, it's just we, we get them daily, and uh, we handle the ones we can because there, there are so many. But kids are, are afraid to say the wrong thing. You can't say the wrong word. You can't. I mean, we had one school who said they were going to outlaw the polo shirts, or out Ralph Lauren shirts. Yeah. Because the guy on the horse had a weapon. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know what it was? Yeah. yeah. Polo mallet. Exactly. Exactly. I, the first thing I thought was, you idiot. <laughs> I know. It's, it's a game. <laughs> you know, I, I have a, one more question because we we're, we just have a couple minutes left. And, you know, it's 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 very depressing, actually, you know, when we think about this country and we're founded on freedom. Are we at the point of no return or what is your suggestion for something positive? Leave us with something positive. What should we do? Positive thing is uh, get active locally. Uh Get down to your city council. I mean, with the militarization of the police, a, a couple uh, local communities now have forced their local communities to send back their MRAPs, which are mine, uh, our tank-like vehicles, and some of the equipment. Uh, you can make an, a really good impact on a local level, but you have to get together. I'm telling people to set up a, what I'm calling uh, civil uh, liberties oversight committees where the community people get together and they watch what the police are doing. When they do a crazy SWAT team raid, they go down to the city council and they mm. object. So, nationally, it's very, very difficult because uh, people in Washington, in my opinion, don't listen, but they do listen at the local level. They don't like protesters. What about the media? You know, I have a, just this one last question. What about the media? I mean, have, 
do we have any influence with the media to help bring all this to the to the light? I mean, I'm the media helping to bring this to the light, but the the you know the mass media. Yeah, there's some good media out there. I mean, but you have to. Again, we're very deft at doing press releases, calling mm-hmm. press conferences. You can do that at the local level. You can get the media to show up, and they will show up. They and they love to cover that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you can use the media, and in fact, in my book, I give some steps on how to use the media, the government of wolves, and how to how to do these protests nonviolently. So, I mean, you will not end violence with violence. Uh, I'm a big follower of Martin Luther King, who basically said that. Yes. Yes. And so we've been we've been talking with uh, John W. Whitehead from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia, and his new book, A Government of Wolves, The Emerging American Police State. And just give your website and then it's time to go, John. Yeah, my website's at Rutherford.org, Rutherford.org, and my book is A Government of Wolves. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Okay, terrific. Well, we will have you back again. Please stay in touch, John, and keep up all the wonderful work to keep our country free. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And write us emails about what's of concern to you about the police state in our in our country and in our state. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.